Welcome to the Rip Hard Podcast by guitarists for guitarists. And now your hosts, John Brown and A.L. Levy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We've been running conversations with some of the best guitar players in the game for over a year now. Not only has this been amazing for myself and A.L. to learn from, but it's been amazing for us to share this vast knowledge with all of you. If you enjoy what we're doing, then please share us with your friends, and we especially love iTunes reviews. Remember that you can tag us if you want to share the podcast on your Instagram. You can find me at Brown Monuments. That's B-R-O-W-N-E-M-O-N-U-M-E-N-T-S. And you can find Al at Al Levy URM Audio. That's E-Y-A-L-L-E-V-I-U-R-M-A-U-D-I-O. Always remember that we will never charge you for this podcast. So please keep listening and enjoying. All we ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Anyway, let's get on to this week's guest. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Our guest today is Miles Kennedy. And man, he was a great guest. And I just got to say that at this point, his notoriety is preceded only by his ability. And there is a lot of ability. The guy is an amazing guitar player, an amazing vocalist. And when I say amazing, I'm not just introing a guest. I am not bullshitting. This guy is unbelievably good. He is the vocalist from Alter Bridge. He's also a vocalist for Slash. And he's done a bunch of guest appearances for people like Disturbed, Hailstorm, Seven Dust, Mark Morton, and a bunch of other stuff. He's had an amazing career. And he's a super cool guy. Anyways, I introduce you, Miles Kennedy. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I'm curious about something. Someone that does so many different things. I know that you're a multi-instrumentalist. You're always in different projects. Congratulations on the solo record coming out today. You do a bunch of different things. How do you actually see yourself or define yourself? Is it something general like musician or one primary instrument everything else kind of just being adjacent to that like how do you see yourself yeah i've always seen myself as a musician song you know songwriter slash musician i I certainly don't i think initially people knew me as being more of a singer slash frontman and what's Mm -hmm. what's interesting is as far as my journey goes that was never the initial goal i i was a guitar player uh i was way too much of a wallflower to want to be the the front man i just wanted to play my guitar and write songs. Uh, so yeah, life is, it's, it's interesting how it's all turned out. Um, so if you were to ask me the, my official answer is very lucky musician. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting to hear that vocals, I guess, aren't or weren't your primary goal or focus. Um, one thing that I really do think people seeking a career in music need to kind of get comfortable with is the idea of recognizing where the opportunity is coming from and rolling with it because you may not get another one. Right. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and for me, it was interesting because I had the opportunity. I I was signed uh, finally to a major label in the mid to late nineties and thought, well, here's your big chance. Long story short, I I found out kind of how it works where 
you get signed by certain people and then those people aren't always with the company. And then suddenly you're just kind of lost <laughs> yeah. on a company for years. And so you think that happens and you're going to be a, a yet another music business casualty. And then another opportunity comes along and you have to look at yourself and go, okay, this is a really great opportunity. And how do you navigate that? And first and foremost, do you, is this something that you feel like is going to work as far as, you know, I had other things come along after that, that I respectfully turned down because I just didn't feel like it was something I could really bring anything to. And so it's kind of understanding uh, knowing, knowing your, knowing what you're capable of. I think that was a, a really important lesson for me, but it was kind of like being thrown in the deep end of the pool and saying, and someone saying, okay, now learn how to swim. Because suddenly I was, I'm talking, referring to about Alter Bridge, where I'd never really fronted a band without a guitar. And that was really difficult initially. In fact, if you watch some of those early videos I can't watch. I mean, I can't that whoever that guy is, it's, so, it's, it's, it's excruciating. I mean, like, what am I, I didn't know what to do with my hands. Where's the guitar neck. So yeah, that was something that took some time. And even initially with, with slash, you know, I was, I was trying to kind of find out how to navigate those waters, but as a songwriter and as, as a singer, you know, I still could, I could utilize that side of the skill set, but, uh, the front man thing took some time. So when someone is trying to gauge their own capabilities, like for instance, what you just said, never having really fronted something with that kind of pressure or at all, and then suddenly just being in the deep end, how do you think someone goes about figuring out, okay, I'm being delusional if I think I can do this versus I can do this even though I've never done it before. I know I got this. Like, it's a fine line. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually, I like that. I think that it's a very fine line. And that's why initially there were some things that came along where, it, yeah, literally was, dude, you're delusional if you think you can step into this at this time. You're just not ready. And then comes a point where, you know, you listen to enough of your self-help uh, your t Tony Robbins self-help tapes. <laughs> and I think I can, and damn it, people like me, you know, the Stuart, the Stuart Smalley or whatever that character was. Uh, and you, 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 you grow into, into the situation that you might be put in. And, and that's been such a big part of my, of my journey. You know, if I was ever to write a book someday, I really would like to, to write something to kind of that manifest the things that I learned along the way. Cause you're looking at somebody who I have people that I look at and I respect tremendously who, when they get on stage, they are able to do that thing. They have that charisma and they have that, that need for whatever it is you get when you're, when you're that person. It's almost like there's a void that gets filled by other people's attention. Yeah, exactly. And for me being hardwired a little differently, that was something that I had to learn how to do. But more than any, more than anything, it was the belief in myself. That was the that was the challenge for me from get go. You know, in high school, I had such bad stage fright. It was crazy how bad it was. And so being able to tackle that and really work through all that out of everything that I somehow, yeah, as far as how my career has worked out, that's the one thing I'm probably 
happiest that I was able to overcome and, and that to get from point A to point B. Because man, when you're, when you're staring down any sort of anxiety issue, it seems like such a ferocious monster. It doesn't seem like there's any way you're going to tame it. And, and I can assure if I can do it, anyone can do it. Trust me. <laughs> That's amazing. Do you think that at some point people do just need to say, fuck it and take a massive risk? Yeah. You just got to jump up. You just jump into the deep end, man. Just see if you can swim. I mean, what's the worst that'll happen? You'll drown. If it doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not so bad. I mean, it's not so bad. <laughs> Would you say then that you use the guitar as almost like a mechanism to cope with the stage fright? Yeah, it was kind of like my shield. Look, I mean, the guitar was how I found my identity as a kid. I was I was a small kid. I was the late bloomer. I was one of the last guys to hit puberty in in high school. <laughs> it was it was horrible. And because you know, people think, oh, that's not so bad, but it actually kind of messes with your head because you're you can't keep up with your peers and girls they don't take you seriously they just want to pinch your cheeks you know <laughs> like so it's like a whole it's like it's like a whole thing and 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 I was trying to find my identity and so when I heard there was a this afternoon I was told a story where when I was playing football with my little brother I was like 13 and I heard eruption into you really got me and then about an hour or two later I heard the riff to you to a whole lot of love and that was like the beginning of the journey right and I was like I have to Whatever that is, I want to do that. And so I, when I started playing guitar, I was so obsessed. And it because it was suddenly I was finding my identity. I was finding who I was and through that beautiful instrument. And so when it came time to be in the situation where now I was asked to sing without that security blanket, I might as well have walked out on stage with my pants down around my ankles. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds terrifying, actually. Yeah, Yeah, right. (laughs) Did you consider yourself a vocalist before that? Or is it just something that you kind of were able to do, but it's not how you defined yourself? I was starting to get more comfortable with that probably in my late 20s. Initially, I was in my early 20s. I just thought of myself as a guitarist, songwriter. I knew I could sing a little bit, but I knew guys that were that I you know, would look at from afar and go, now that's a singer. And so I think that I had to spend a lot of time developing more than anything stylistically and defining my instrument. Because I, I went through, like a lot of singers do, and guitar players for that matter, anybody, where you you copycat. So if I listen to the first Mayfield 4 record that, that was recorded in 97, what I hear is a guy who had no idea who he was yet. It's like he was listening to way too much Jeff Buckley. And, and, and not that that's a bad thing. I mean, Jeff is no. still one of my favorites. So to say, is that possible? Yeah. <laughs> right? Exactly. Right. Well, I'd seen him play about two years prior, and it changed totally, like, changed oh, my mind. It was incredible. It was like one, one of the most incredible things I probably will ever see. And and so I had that influence. And I was listening to a lot of Radiohead. And I just, so I listened to those vocals. And I'm like, okay, that, you know, clearly you weren't quite there yet. And even before that, I was in a band who we were kind of like more funky, raw. I don't know how to describe it. But I was obsessed with Stevie Wonder and Marvin Gaye. So there was that element. So it took a long time to f- discover who I was. And, and, uh, that was that was the hard part of the journey in that respect. If you don't mind me asking, how old were you when the Alter Bridge thing happened? I was forty nine. No, I'm joking. I was, <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, thirty three. I think somewhere around there. That's awesome. The reason I'm bringing that up is because um, through Riff Hard and a lot of our subscribers and also 
my other podcasts in the recording school, I encounter lots of people who, uh, who, you know, they get to be 30, 35, whatever, and they feel like it's over. Life has passed them by. There's, there's no point in even trying from this point forward. And it's just, it's awesome to hear that 33 is when, uh, you know, what we know of your career is, you know, when that went public, like you yeah. lived a whole life before that. Absolutely. I'm a firm believer and I'm glad you bring that up. I'll tell you, I'll tell you what, I think that people do think that if you've reached the end of the road, once you hit 30, it's not like you're an athlete. You know, if you're an athlete, things change, your knees give out, your joints, you know, I, I can understand that, but this is music. There's a, a recent success story and I, he's such an inspiration to me because it was the same situation, but I think even more unique, which is Sturgill Simpson, who is a, you know, he, here's a guy who was working for the railroad and suddenly he starts making records and it, and guys, he's brilliant. Like his songwriting is as a songwriter, I hear his lyrics and, and, and what he does. And I just go, this guy was, he was doing what? And then, so in his mid thirties, he decides to follow his bliss. Like I'm a, I don't know if you're familiar with Joseph Campbell, but Joseph Campbell's like a big, is a big thing for me. And there was this, his, a lot of his teachings were about following your bliss, the idea of doing what you want to do. And I think that seeing someone like Sturgill Simpson do that in, in the, you know, the middle of his thirties and how successful him, he ended up, I mean, he's Grammy award winning artist now. And, and so I think that should be an inspiration for any, any artist who thinks that just because you cross that threshold that you're done, you're not, you've got plenty of time. I actually think that those years, the early thirties are actually the point when you do find your own voice, where you've managed to gather all these pieces that you've collected in your early years, such as listening to Marvin Gaye, uh, Radiohead, but then you can define it and create your own sound out of it. I think that actually happens late 20s to early 30s that people really find what they want. I don't know if that's your experience as well. Absolutely. You're absorbing all this information and through trial and error in your own work, you're spitting that back out. And at first it's too close to the source for lack of a better word, you're ripping people off. You're not, you might not be trying to, but it's just happening, you know? Yep. And, and so as you continue putting in the work, putting in your 10,000 hours, if not more, then you start to refine it and starts to crystallize. And before you know it, you're starting to step into your own, you're starting to find who you are. And I think it's probably that, that way with, with any, any artist, you know, whether it's music or whether it's, you know, painting or, or whatever it is, it, it's, it's the idea that you just keep putting in the time and it's trial and error. And, and, and it is hard, I think, because what you sometimes start to think is like, oh, man, I got to go out in the trenches and do this again. And is this all just a waste of time? And you got people around you going, when are you going to get a real job? And you got to start <laughs> thinking about a family and all that stuff. But, but, but the thing is, is that if you're being true to yourself and you're following your bliss. This is your purpose, man. Like this is, we're not here for a very long time. And I have a lot of people I know who didn't follow their bliss and they're freaking miserable. Yeah. Now they're in their third quarter and they're like, yeah, well, I've got a job and I make money and it's not really what I want to do. I don't know. That's just not what I want. I didn't want to end up that way. I'm sure also by virtue of the career you've had, you know, quite a few people also who, have followed that 
and you can contrast the difference in the results and how they feel about how their lives have turned out. Absolutely. Obviously, there comes a point where people need to pay attention to reality (laughs) because, you know, reality doesn't go away. Bills do need to get paid. But really, someone is only too old if they decide that they're too old, Right. in my opinion. Not just that. I don't know about you, but I didn't even start to feel like uh, I was becoming an adult until I was like, around 35 or 36, like, and I'm still an idiot, but that's when I started to be a little bit less of an idiot, I guess, just a little bit less of an idiot. I feel like, uh, maturity doesn't really start to hit until your thirties anyways. Um, and in some ways I feel like some people just haven't lived long enough to really find their voice any earlier. So a lot of music that's, and look, this is a super broad statement. Uh, so I, I know that this is not entirely true at all, but a lot of the really cool music that comes from people that are younger is very cool in, uh, in ways that youth can accelerate in like super technical proficiency, uh, things like that. Um, you'll see super young bands that can just do amazing, amazing things and wow the shit out of people might not be the deepest music ever, but, uh, I think that it just takes, it takes a while. You have to live a little while before you can really, really find some depth, I think. And that's why, uh, you know, the prime time for composers, for instance, is in their late forties, fifties and sixties. Symphony conductors aren't considered to hit their prime until their sixties or seventies. This idea that prime is in your twenties. And once you hit 30, you're done is just plain wrong. If you look at every other type of art in the world. That's a really, really good point. And I think people, they just either, they don't know or don't understand that. I'd be really curious. It's funny. You talk about composers. My favorite song of all time is, is rock second piano concerto and i always wonder what his i'm actually looking for it now just to make sure but but it's in c minor it's in c minor and i always wonder like how i should look that up and find out what how old he was when he wrote that so he wrote it in 1901 Oh man, this is gonna bum. <laughs> was he was he like fourteen? <laughs> no, he wasn't. He wasn't fourteen, but it looks like he was twenty-seven or twenty-eight. Oh my goodness! <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. There's freaks. There's freaks out there. Yeah, that's what I was actually gonna comment with, just saying that the you can't um, make uh, an opinion like that on freaks because there are freaks in the world that right. just seem to be able to be good at everything. Uh, really, well, th- that's age. why I said that the statement was super general. <laughs> <laughs> Because there's always going to be those people out there. Yeah, that's the one. Ah, jeez. Yeah, well, (laughs) anyways, carry on. (laughs) It's actually cool that you brought that up because that's, I've always thought that's an interesting topic. I think one of the things that I guess gets people super negative about their own age is freaks like that. Prodigies, like people that are like one in 10 million or something that just are the furthest thing from the norm of like a badass professional musician. Like there's obviously to have a real music career, you do need to have a, you know, talent, determination, all, all this shit. But within that, there are phenoms that come around and just are 
way beyond their years in terms of skill and ability and talent. And it's just a freakish thing. They tend to get a ton of press and people write about them and talk about them and make legends out of them. And so I think that people coming up mistakenly look up to those people as who to try to be like or the gold standard or even the norm. And I think that that's super dangerous because there's a whole industry out there of hardworking people who are not that. It's kind of like if people say, well, Elon Musk dropped out of college, so I can too kind of stuff. <laughs> Probably don't. <laughs> Probably not a good idea. Probably not a good idea. <laughs> yeah. But it is interesting. Like it's that little engine that could thing or the, you know, the tortoise and the hare story. It's the idea of some people just accelerate really fast and they get from point A to point B and they're these kind of unique situations, right? They're outliers or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But, but I, one thing that gives me hope is that I guess through things that I've seen, even people that I work with, that they were the ones that just kept working consistently. It wasn't about, you know, I had people that I knew coming up the ranks that were total prodigies that then ended up, maybe it's because it came so easy. I've always wondered if it comes too easy and you don't have to work for it, then like, I remember seeing this, this young some like it was on the Johnny Carson show how long this was a long time ago and he was this little child prodigy drummer and he was he was like a little buddy rich he was incredible and and he just kind of disappeared after you know and it was it was like dude, what happens to some of those brilliant you know child um prodigies where maybe they just it's just not enough of a challenge but for those who have more mortal talents and are are so hungry to achieve those moments, maybe that's what keeps, it's just surely the love of it that never goes away. It's a matter of keeping that love alive that then eventually it happens. So I don't know. I think that the majority of people, we're talking about musicians, but I think the majority of people who can keep something going long-term, something that requires uh, creativity and something unique being brought, you know, that's part of the job description. I think that the majority, at least of the people that I've encountered who have been able to sustain it over decades are the type who just push on and push on and push on. Some of them are redonkulously talented. They're all very talented, but they're not all phenoms. It's almost like that doesn't matter. What matters, I think, is that ability to focus. Yeah, yeah right? absolutely. It's like having a decent amount of talent like, you know, average, maybe more, a little bit more, but it's that, it's that obsessive nature, at least, uh, you know, for what I know about my own brain, and this isn't to say that I'm in that league, but, but the idea that when I start, I'm horrible com compartmentalizing, right? And when I start writing, I don't sleep. I oftentimes don't eat. I just become completely obsessed with whatever it is that I'm working on. And I think it's that the fact that that switch is broken maybe ends up being a help in the in the long run. It's a beast to live with, though. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Know? It's probably not the healthiest thing, but. Do you have a choice in the matter, though? <laughs> not really. <laughs> yeah. You may as well make the best of it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I do think you're correct, though, that that's the determining factor is the ability to focus intensely for as long as it takes and I guess some people, uh, the higher up they are on the talent scale, 
the less time that they need to exert that level of focus. But it doesn't change the fact that they still need to exert that type of focus. Some people just need more elapsed time, yeah. which is actually in some ways way more impressive because there's no way around it. You've got to get obsessed and you have to engage that part of your brain that does whatever the hell happens when creativity strikes. Exactly. So the focus thing, has that ever been a challenge for you or is it just something that you've naturally just been able to lock in on the obsessive focus? Well, if it's something that I really like, it's not a challenge. I mean, when I thought, I think that was the thing with discovering the guitar, it was something that was so easy to focus on. It was all I could focus on. I went from, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't like a, like my natural ability as a student was probably a B. I wasn't, I wasn't like the sharpest tool in the shed, but I worked really hard. This was all before guitar. And so I, I managed to keep my grades at a certain level and, and somehow trick people into letting me into like the, I think they called it the honor society where, you know, like the good grades kids hang out together and <laughs> whatever, <laughs> wear your sweaters or whatever you do. And then I started playing guitar and within a semester, my grades all went, they just went because I, I couldn't even focus in class. All I could think about was getting home. Oh yeah, I want to work on this now and I'm going to do this and I want to try to do this. And it was just like, I couldn't shut my brain off. And it was, it was kind of a problem. It got to be such a problem that my, my, my teachers and my, I think they all like had a meeting about me and like, well, what's going on here? I got kicked out of our society. But, uh, you know, it's, look, I found my passion. I, I'm grateful. Get other I, priorities. Exactly. More important things to do. <laughs> it's weird. Just out of curiosity, I don't know if you're a parent or not. No, um, I have to have a dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah, I, I'm not, I'm not a parent. So I don't know what I would do in this scenario. But if you had a kid and the kid discovered music and then just let their grades just go. What, what would your reaction be? <laughs> Man, that is, oh, that's really tough because I want, like, I get it. The, the parent sitting you down and do you have a backup plan? I remember I used to get that all the time from my parents and my grand, I had a grandmother it was like, when are you going to, you know, by the time I was 25 and was still just struggling, you know, and they were like, well, when are you going to, you know, kind of go back to school and, be, you know, become an adult? And I was just like, well, just one more year. I just have one more thing I want to try. And so, yeah, I don't know what I would do. I, I guess I'd have, I guess, given how my life has worked out, I probably would have, the, my child would be like, come on, like, <laughs> really? <laughs> don't have much of a leg to stand Yeah, on. exactly. Are you kidding me, bro? <laughs> I think the best way to talk to them about time management, wouldn't it? It's like, don't try to stop them from the inevitable. Just make sure that the time's put in for the rest so that they do have a backup plan if it doesn't work out. That's a good point. Yeah. But then I think back to me in that inability to compartmentalize. Yes. That's my yeah. Achilles heel is that I can't, I'm horrible at compartmentalizing. I mean, once I start something, I just don't want to stop. It's yep. almost to the point with me where sometimes I get afraid to start writing songs. Like, yep. because I know how my brain's hardwired. And if I start that process, then I'm, it's just not going to stop. And then I know I have other things I need to get done. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of a, it's a strange dynamic. Fascinating, really. I read somewhere that uh, Danny Elfman, before he would go write a score for a movie, he'd have a going away party. 
<laughs> yeah. No, I'm, just, I'm totally serious. That actually makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, he would have totally. a going away party. Yeah. All his friends would come, family, everything. Wow. <laughs> see, see him again in three months. That's great. <laughs> Yeah. That's a smart wow. idea, actually. Yeah, because yeah. normally writing a record is a minimum of six months out of your life. Yeah. Where every single night you're obsessing over the minute details that probably no one else will ever hear. <laughs> Absolutely. But without that, you just don't finish it. No. I think that all of us are like that then, in that sense, because I'm pretty sure I was when it came to writing songs. I'm pretty certain that AL was too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a double-edged sword i think i don't think you can create things without kind of destroying something else in the process and i'm not trying to have like pseudo spiritual babble or whatever with this but <laughs> i think that in order to get obsessive and start creating things you have to kind of make the decision to just let that take over and when you do make that decision well just by virtue of making that decision a lot of other things just fall by the wayside and it just is what it is. And you can go for balance, but then you're giving up being at the mercy of the creative urge. And you might be, you might be hurting your output. And I think that that's a choice that, or a decision that every creative person needs to weigh out is, uh, which one of these am I going to sacrifice more? Like, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's a really good point. It's so true. And I don't think everybody realizes that when they embark on the journey is that you are, it's a very selfish existence. It is. It really is. And I'm crazy lucky because my wife, she's always understood that. And we started when, when I met her 20 years ago, you know, I was back to teaching guitar and I was just, you know, I was struggling and I, and I, and I was still, still writing. And she recognized that early on to kind of give me that leeway and she's never, ever said, okay, I, I, I need you to be more present. She's always been very cognizant of the fact that I have to follow the muse. She knows who she married. She knows who she married. Exactly. It's interesting because not everybody finds that partner. And so then there's that push, there's that tug of war, you know, well, I need, I need more time. And I, and, and I get that. Hey man, I told, I don't know if I could marry me. <laughs> I don't think I could, frankly, <laughs> for a number of reasons, not just because, uh, you know, I get a little obsessive about songwriting, but geez, that's, that's helped me a lot. Actually. I, I that's such a team with, with her and I, it's a, it's a team thing. And, and that's, uh, that's helped me in my journey for sure. I guess we got to find the balance where, where we can, right. Right. Take it where we can get it. It's just, you know, I hear about stuff like Elon Musk's personal life, which is super public. So there's no way to avoid it, but just like, you know, how many divorces and just like what sounds like a really tumultuous personal life. And like, we all know about the lives of super creative people who have seemingly every accomplishment under their belt, whose personal lives are just insane and a wreck or, you know, surgeons who have that going on. And I definitely think that it is rare to find that kind of balance in a partner. And if you do, that's fucking awesome. Yeah. Hold on to it for dear life. Don't screw it up. <laughs> <laughs> it's a rare thing, especially someone who can deal with the artistic temperament. Right. That's true. Cause we are a bunch of little babies. You know? <laughs> I mean, geez. 
So what you said about the selfish existence is interesting to me because I think just like you have to be cool with sacrificing certain things, you have to allow yourself to be borderline narcissistic if you're going to be an artist, I think. You have to be because you are creating something. Even if you're collaborating with somebody and it's teamwork still, the part of it that's you, you have to like surrender yourself to yourself basically Yeah, all the way. You have to allow yourself to get at least a little bit narcissistic, which is not the best trait when it comes to everything else in life, but it's a, almost a necessary trait when it comes to creation, I think. That's really, really true. It's, it's bizarre, isn't it? Like, cause I, yeah. I have, it's funny cause I don't really like the human ego. I don't really yeah. like that side of, I mean, that's just a necessary thing though. It's what it's, you kind of need a certain amount of it to create. And you need that, that you're right that there's a necessary narcissism to whatever, whatever that is, it's, it is necessary, but man, it's such a beast sometimes. And I, it's something I still struggle with and I try and keep it in the closet. I try, you know, I just don't, I don't, to me, it just complicates things sometimes because mm-hmm. the, the ego needs to be satiated and you need words of affirmation and you put something out and you need to know that people approve. And it's like, it's such an interesting, it's like you keep saying, it's that double-edged sword, you know, it's a very strange existence. It's a beautiful existence when it, when it's, when it's all working out and it's all, it's look, it's worth it when you create something and you listen to it and you realize that something you've been able to manifest something that is, that is authentic and genuine. And there's really nothing quite like that feeling, okay. but to get there, the process is crazy sometimes it's completely nuts but we're all we're all hooked right we're we're, <laughs> we're, we're jonesing for our next fix for our next composition to be completed and, and you know you know how it is when you hear the mix you get the mix back that's the best part when I mean, you put in yeah. all the time and then you get the mix back and you're like hair stand up or you dwell up or whatever it is that helps you gauge whether what you did was from here and it's like all right okay that i guess it was at this moment, it was worth putting up with all of that. It's, it's fascinating. Talking about double-edged swords, have you ever had a moment when you've got all the mixes back and you didn't have that feeling and you had the opposite feeling where you thought everything sucked? <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. I've had that happen and you just feel crestfallen on a number of levels because for me, I'm beating myself up like... You know, I should have done this. I should have done that. I should have followed this instinct. And then, you know, it's going to be put out with your name on it. And it's like, (laughs) I'm going to be just raked over the coals by the press. And my friends are going to laugh at me. I mean, I remember one of the first records I ever put out, uh, an important record. I won't mention names, but that's exactly what happened. And I actually thought the career was over after that happened. I thought, well, that was it. That was your, that was your chance. And I had, fr- I had friends that were just honest with me and like, you didn't do it, man. Like, I'm sorry. And I appreciated that, that they were, they were totally honest, but it's a horrible feeling. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting though. So you're saying you had that at the beginning of your career. Mm-hmm. Why didn't you quit? Because a lot of people would have, would have taken that feedback, that experience and been like, okay, I tried, didn't work out, it's over. It could be that I'm A, bullheaded, or B, just <laughs> stupid. <laughs> I mean, it kind of looks like that. There's a certain part of me that just 
it was weird. No matter how bad things got, no matter how many times I kept falling down and just, 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 I remember just having this little, this something deep, deep, deep inside that always just kept saying, get back up. Eventually it's going to work out. And I think, frankly, it was just, it kind of was just too dumb to know when to quit. <laughs> you know, I just couldn't, I couldn't fathom life without it, man. I mean, it was just such a huge part of who I was. And I just had this, like, I don't know, it's really hard to articulate. Just couldn't stop. I think that certain personalities as well, you fall down so many times and you just want to keep going because it's without it, it's just you, like what you wanted to do, that's you. And you can't see any other way to do anything else. I think that's a particularly powerful personality trait, let's say, that people can go through such negatives, but realize that the only way from here is up. True. In fact, that's a great, I'm, I'm going to grab this. So someone gave this to me a long time ago. Okay. And I've never, I've never brought this up. This is from my friend, Leah Simon, who she was at the beginning of, 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 of the journey with major labels. I met her like 20 some odd years ago. And she gave me this, this piece of paper. I hung it on my refrigerator and I have it in, in, in this room here now. Sorry, I got to put in my, put on my shades <laughs> so I can read this, but it says, I'm blind. It says, okay. <laughs> it says, Stars may be seen from the bottom of a deep well when they cannot be seen from the top of the mountain. So many things learned in adversity, which the prosperous man dreams not of. I mean, ugh, that's amazing. Like, amazing. Right. And I, I had this hanging on the fridge. I've never told I, I should reach out to her, but it's like little things like that. You know, maybe that was it. Maybe that was the, the catalyst to keep me going. But yeah, deep thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> The thing is, we all hear these stories about people who, you know, were rejected 49 times, but you don't hear too many times about the stories of people who got somewhere and shit just didn't work out right. Like the album came out, it just wasn't that good. It wasn't as good as they wanted. They did some tours, but the crowd didn't really give a shit. Been there. <laughs> yeah. That, I think that that's a very, very common experience it's not as dramatic to an outsider as nothing happened i i you know i spent my whole life in obscurity and uh didn't get my chance it's not as dramatic but i think in some ways it's it can be a lot more devastating to people to almost get there not quite that's why i brought up the question is why didn't you quit because i think that that has been where i've seen the most people quit has been like when they get signed put out that first record or on the second record or, you know, before they're established, but they're no longer local. And so they have their first real hope that this could actually work out. And then they enter the music business and get kicked in the, <laughs> get kicked in the teeth by reality. Right. That I feel like tends to be the, you know, one of the great filters. Uh, that's where I see people leave the most. A lot more than on the local level. On the local level, they just keep going and going and going and going and going. Kind of almost in like a state of bliss, like you said. Yeah. Like ignorance is bliss kind of state. But uh, that kind of like what you just said, that story you just said, I think that that is where most musicians tend to quit from what I have seen. Man, you are the spot on. So, I mean, it's, you're absolutely right. There's something that happens when you finally get your chance to play 
in an, on a national level and, and you're playing in the big leagues. Right. And then you discover, you know, that's the sad part about it. Like someone told me like the percentage of bands that actually ever recoup their record advance is like 5%. This was back in the day. Wow. That's pretty high. <laughs> right? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so oh, it's, maybe it's 3%, but either way, it's not good. And when you, you dedicate your whole life, your first few decades on this planet to discover that, yeah, it's, it's beyond, it's beyond devastating. And, and then what happens is that the whole experience, you become jaded, you sour on all of it. I was certainly at risk for that happening without a doubt after that five years that we spent at a major. But like I was saying earlier, I was just too damn bullheaded. I don't even think it's bullheaded or, you know, there's definitely stupidity in there. I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll definitely own that. <laughs> but, but I think it's just because it's all, all I knew. I mean, it was just literally like, it would be like telling someone to stop breathing, like learn a new way to breathe. Uh, that was what it was like. You might as well. <laughs> Sounds like you didn't give yourself another option. I didn't. I had no other option. Maybe to teach guitar. I, maybe I would have been, a, you know, kept teaching guitar. But I, I remember that. I, 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 there was one moment. You ever seen Boogie Nights? Long time ago, but yeah. Coming Long out. time ago. And there's the part in there where Mark Wahlberg's character, they go to this drug guy's house. And there's like, there's like this, it's crazy. And the three of them are sitting on the couch. They're, they're going to try and steal stuff, I think, from the, from the, the drug guy. Anyways, <laughs> there's this, this moment where Mark Wahlberg, like you can see it. He has this epiphany, like this, this look comes over his face. And it's a brilliant, it's really brilliant where you can tell he's having the realization that this is not this life that he, this, this rut he's in is not working. He's got, he's got to change his life. And I was teaching one day. And, you know, sometimes as a teacher, you get great students that inspire you. And it's the most fulfilling thing ever, really, because you see their growth in that and you know that you were a part of that. And that's really beautiful. But then occasionally, you know, you realize that you're babysitting. And I remember sitting there and there was this very young, he was an adorable kid, but he was just, I think before he got there, his mom must have taken him to the candy store or something. And he was just, <laughs> he had no desire to play. And he was running around and I was in this little closet of a room and he's just running around the room and I'm sitting there holding my guitar. And it was that, that was the moment that like, this Mark, is my life. Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> at that point I was like 32 and I was just like, no this isn't, this is not going to work for me. And so I went home and I just kept on writing, keeping my fingers crossed. Good decision. Very good decision. <laughs> I know you've got to go in a few minutes and we really should talk about your record at least a little. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. I've, this has been one of the, the best conversations for, I've enjoyed this thoroughly. So it's okay. It's okay. We don't have to spend all the time on it. <laughs> Thank you. And likewise. Likewise. Yeah. Well, I was not surprised when I heard it. I was expecting it to sound great and be great. And uh, it's so tastefully done. And uh, anything that Elvis touches sounds fucking incredible. Right? He's so damn good. Isn't he? He's, yeah. That's yeah. why people are like, why do you keep going back to Elvis? <laughs> do you listen why to not? his records? I mean, yeah. geez. I was just listening to it earlier through uh, through my speakers and it just blew me away how good it sounded. It sounded fucking great. Excuse my language. <laughs> <laughs> I, I concur. He's just, he just, and besides the fact that he's so good at getting sounds, he also, he's just a great producer and he's a great human being. He's one of my best friends. So yeah, I, I can't, uh, we sit here and listen to me, you know, gush about Elvis for the next 15 minutes if we had more time. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing real quick, I'm just curious about before sure. we end, uh, 
just on the topic of Elvis and producers, what does it take for you as a, I'll say musician? So that encompasses guitar, songwriting, vocals, lap steel, whatever the hell it is you're doing at that moment. What is it in a producer that A, makes you feel comfortable working with them and B, makes you maybe even want to go back? That they understand the psychology, not just the sonically from an engineering standpoint, but they understand the psychology of making a record and how to get the best out of an artist and make an artist feel comfortable. And that's something that Elvis definitely understands is how to coax the best out of you and keep it relaxed and have fun, uh, not too clinical. But when we need to get to business, we get to business, but we do it in such a way where it's still it's chill and nobody's, you know, getting up tight. And so that's, I think that's why he's such a, such a, an important part of, of my musical journey is that he knows how to get the best out of me. Producers listening should take heed of that. Just my other podcast is a recording podcast and every single producer who comes on talks about how the most important skills that they can have are not the technical ones. It's the psychological skills, the people's skills. Because if people aren't comfortable around you, it doesn't matter how good you are. Amen to that. With that said, Miles Kennedy, thank you so much for hanging out with us. And congrats on the album release. It's uh, been a pleasure talking to you. Man, this has been so much fun. You guys are great. I hope you do this again. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, we should we should do a longer one next time for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We should. And hopefully I'll get my audio f- fixed. Uh, I was, you know, I'm sorry about that, but this was great, you guys. Thank you sincerely. Likewise. Likewise, man. Thank you very much. It's interesting that he uh, is a guitar player first because I didn't even know he was a guitar player originally. I mean, I've known for a while, but I just kind of like he said, I kind of, heard of him as a vocalist. Yeah, me too. I actually had no idea that he was that proficient. And it was actually technically his main instrument. The fact is, is that he probably did a Devin and learned to sing because he couldn't find anyone else to do it. <laughs> Dude, he's, he's a phenomenal guitar player. Yeah, phenomenal guitar player and a phenomenal vocalist. Yes. And just hearing him speak about how he had no other plan you can hear it in the way he plays like not only sings and plays guitar but you can just hear it in the way that he's writing like he believes in everything that he's doing you can just hear it i don't know what to say other than yeah i completely agree there's a <laughs> there's a confidence in his vibrato that yes. you cannot fake no yeah it's right from within it's really hard to explain like picking up on those things but i think we've previously talked about it well actually we talked about it with nita i think that trying to do something that isn't completely you that the audience can just pick up on it like they're they're almost we're almost we can pick up on bullshit (laughs) you know it's like we're programmed that way especially fans of guitar music yeah Yeah, and vibrato is the thing that can really ruin guitar music. (laughs) Yeah, he's got that, uh, and I don't even know what to call it. Like, he's got that perfect vibrato that's not too wide, not too fast. Yep. Just, like, perfect. Um, Yep. Which very few players actually have. Like, Marty Friedman has that. Wes Houck. Yeah, Wes has it. Zach has it in his own way. Yeah. But it's actually super, super rare. 
Yeah. And for me, the vibrato is what makes or breaks a player. Like if the vibrato's bad, I turn it off. It doesn't matter how good everything else is. If the vibrato is wrong, it ruins everything for me, which is bizarre. <laughs> Same here. So one of the reasons that, that I was so against the guitar pro era, like I, I'm not against it anymore, but I was at the beginning. Yeah. The reason was because I felt like, like I don't think guitar pro was ruining guitar playing or anything like that. But what I noticed was that guitar players that wrote in that and then didn't really learn their parts were not getting vibrato right. Like it seems like vibrato got really, really bad when people started using Guitar Pro for some reason. And I think it has something to do with them learning parts that were in Guitar Pro and the vibrato that's <laughs> in Guitar Pro. Now, that has since corrected itself, I think. Yeah. There's a lot of great players with amazing vibrato now. But at first, when that transition in how people wrote happened, yeah, the first thing that went out the window was vibrato. <laughs> I think like maybe it's just that people didn't focus on those key elements as much because they were just learning what they'd done on a computer. So they Well yeah, they were trying to recreate what they had programmed. The and the program couldn't do good vibrato. So they learned they basically mimicked the program's vibrato. Yeah. It's interesting, actually, because it's a double-edged sword from from the programming era. We got drummers that didn't know what triggers were, but we also got guitar players that tried to emulate the vibrato from Guitar Pro. <laughs> yeah. Well, other things did happen that were good, like the technical ability of guitar players went up a lot. Like the things that people can downpick now. Yeah. Uh, you know, with the exception of some freaks like James Hetfield. Yeah. But people can downpick now is way beyond what people just could normally casually downpick in the early 2000s. Yeah, I mean, it's just a, it, it was a skill set that was required in Bay Area thrash. You know, there's a lot of guitar players throughout that movement that were very, very good at downpicking. But then after that, up until mid to late 2000s, it really wasn't utilized again. It was almost forgotten, like a forgotten skill set. Um, but nowadays, yeah, there's loads of guitar players that have great downpicking abilities. And fortunately for us, great vibrato abilities. <laughs> yeah. Thank God. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> you know, one thing that I want to point out about what he said and what he talked about was the obsessiveness, which led to not quitting. And yeah. the not letting age be a factor. Like, imagine, dude, that guy has had an amazing career. Yeah. Alter Bridge, like, Slash, like, I mean, the list goes on. The dude has had a fucking unbelievable career. All of it after the point where most people think you should just quit. Yeah. Imagine if he listened to those people. Imagine if he just quit, then the world wouldn't have got to um, yeah. realize his greatness. I mean, just as a, there's an example of this as well that we can talk about just outside of the music world. And thank God that he didn't quit. Another one of those is Morgan Freeman. Now, 
that guy. The actor, yeah. Yeah, the actor, Morgan Freeman. Like, he was in his late 30s or maybe even early 40s before he got his first major role. And that's really late. But can you imagine a world without that guy's voice in it? I don't want to. I don't want to either because, yeah, I mean, so many beautiful moments that are encapsulated in my life from that man. (laughs) And, yeah, I mean, I, I think that a lot of people have quit that could have ended up being top tier level, had amazing careers, and it was almost like their own id, I guess, or ego maybe, or anxiety got in the way of what they should be doing. Well, yeah, when they say it didn't work out for me, but they took themselves out of the running, it didn't work out because you took yourself out of the running. Like you guaranteed that outcome. Now, that's not to say that if they had stayed in the running that... It was guaranteed, yeah. Nothing's guaranteed. That's, uh, you know, that's why these things are risky and that's why they're special also when they do happen. But regardless, by taking yourself out of the race, you have, you have signed and sealed your own outcome. There is that, but you've also got to remember that everyone has their breaking point. Sure. As well. And, you know, it's probably nothing wrong with that, but at the same time. The universe doesn't care, though. The universe doesn't care about that. And it's a case of if you're going to quit, just make sure that you're not going to be in 10, 20, 30 years time thinking, I wish I'd just continued on with it. Because that would be probably worse than being broke and trying to do it. At least Absolutely. If, if you're doing it, you're trying, you know? So I think you should quit when you're ready to move on. Yes. That is what I think so too. Yeah. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I mean, look, people are allowed to make whatever decisions they want with their own life. But uh, I think quitting something before you're ready to move on, when it comes to something as personal as music, maybe it's the practical thing to do. If you don't address it properly... Uh, you're going to deal with some psychological fallout, I think. Exactly. And just remember, there's nothing wrong with taking time away from what you love. It doesn't need to have to be for the rest of time. But if you want to take six months to reevaluate, I think that a lot of people make these decisions in spur of the moment anger. And, you know, not just in music, but in anything we often say things and do things that maybe we don't mean in the moment through anger or sadness. And I think it's often wise to relate that if you're going to make a decision such as impactful as quitting what you love and you've done for years. Um, Well, I mean, we just spoke to all from Evile who quit guitar for five years, right? uh, Yeah, from 2013 to 2019. Yeah, he didn't even pick it up. Yeah. Yeah. And he's back. And he's loving it. That is some time off. That is a lot of time off. But he's loving it again. He said he even missed it. And, you know, I bet a little bit on the inside that he probably wishes that he didn't stop. But maybe Maybe. it was healthy for him to stop for that amount of time, for him to rekindle his love and understand what it is that he loved about it. And there's nothing wrong with that. No, not at all. I mean, from talking to him, I totally picked up that he was cool with his decision. I didn't get, I didn't sense any regret in his voice. No, I didn't either. Hey, just think maybe one day you'll even write, write a couple of songs. I mean, I'm, I'm expecting it to happen. Yeah. In fact, I fucking know it's going to happen. We'll see about that. No, no, no. I know it's going to happen. 
Do you know why? Because we even spoke why? about writing a song together not too long ago. So I know that the itch is still there. Dude, that was like two years ago. Nah, it wasn't. It was like a year ago, mate. <laughs> was I high? Nah, you weren't high. It's still there. And it will never it will never go away. It's just about, you know, I guess it's just about priorities, isn't it? Yeah, we'll see about that. <laughs> if I send you a riff that triggers something in you, then we'll see. One day. Yeah. Okay. Deal. We shall see. challenge. <laughs> All right. And with that, I'll just say that it's been a pleasure. We'll talk to you next week. Talk to you next week. Go to riffhard.com and join the revolution. If you want to learn how to play guitar, sick. Thanks for listening to the Riff Hard Podcast. We'll see you next week. Thank you.